This is MC Fireside Chats, a weekly show devoted to the outdoor hospitality industry, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. You'll hear from special guests that focus on topics to help your business succeed, all backed by Modern Campground, the most innovative news source in the industry. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of MC Fireside Chats. My name is Brian Searle with Insider Perks here, as always, with normally Kara, who's not here, as always, this morning. She's running into some internet issues, so hopefully she can join us. But super excited to bring you another episode. It's our second in a row for a series on the RV industry, outdoor recreation, trying to focus topically on that because we know even though our audience is mostly campground owners, it's super important and critical to your business as all these things tie together under the outdoor hospitality umbrella. So we're welcoming back Shane Devinish from the Canadian Recreational Vehicle Association. Did I pronounce that right, Shane? You did. The RVA. I tried to spell it all out instead of just use the acronym. And then we've got Eleanor Ham back from the uh, president of the Canadian RVDA. And then Phil Ingracia normally joins us from the RVDA in America, but he had a previous commitment today. And then we've got some new guests who are going to introduce themselves here. We've got Jessica Turner, who's the executive director of the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable. Did I get that right? Hopefully. And then, oh, she, she lost them. We lost Jessica. Okay. So she's here. She's coming back, hopefully. And we've got Matt from Matt's RV Reviews, who is a, a super popular YouTube channel guy, right, Matt? You do all kinds of reviews. You're enthusiastic. <laughs> yes, thank you. Showing us all kinds of cool stuff. We've got both of you guys on. Let's start here just because we're waiting on Jessica to get her camera back on the ring. There she is. Welcome, Jessica. I introduced you. Hopefully, I didn't butcher it. I just said you were from the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable and you were super. Oh, right, right, yeah. And then we've got Kurt as well, too. Kurt, I forgot you. I'm so sorry. Kurt used to be on our first uh, Wednesday of the show month and uh, for the open discussion. We moved him here because we felt like we could give some more time to National Parks Traveler and public lands and those kinds of discussions as part of the outdoor recreation. So she's super excited to have Kurt here. Uh, let's do our two new guests first. Matt, tell us a little bit about what Matt's RV Reviews is. Why is it important? What are you doing to help the industry? And how'd you get started? All those kinds of things. Thank you. Thank you. First, I want to give a shout out to Kyle Brady in the chat. What's up, brother? And then, hey, everyone, my name is Matt. I have a YouTube channel called Matt's RV Reviews. Well, I have two YouTube channels, Matt's RV Reviews, Motorhomes, and Matt's RV Reviews, Tobles. And what we do is we work with dealerships and we travel around and we review a new RV every single day. It's every other day on both channels. So tonight will be a fifth wheel. Tomorrow will be a motorhome. The next night will be a travel trailer and then another motorhome. And uh, we do that every single day. And yeah, that's what we do. We do RV reviews. So it's pretty exciting. What? What happens if you run out of RVs, Matt? Are they making them fast? <laughs> yeah, no, that there's an abundance of RVs. I, I always feel bad for all my fellow YouTube content creators because I'm categorized as a YouTuber or an influencer, but I don't consider myself like that really because they have to come up with ideas for their videos. Me, I have, I'm making 365 videos a year. There's enough different makes and models and floor plans. And let's say in the hypothetical world, there isn't enough or there's only then the next model year kicks over and then we just do it all over again. So it, it, it's really cool. And we're now in our like fourth year doing it. And it was really funny. Like when we started, 
Like a lot of the RV manufacturers didn't like what we were doing in the beginning because what we do that's different from every other RV review show is we give you three things we like about each RV and three things that we don't like about it. And now most, I, I don't want to say most, but I think half of the manufacturers really embrace what we do. And it's not my opinions that we say it's, I call it our opinion the RV review crew, and they read the comments and you have the Brady's of Alliance that really listen to our customers' feedback and they make they make changes to their product. Uh, and that's what people really like. Awesome. I definitely want to come back to you. I want to talk more about some of the RV reviews you've done and, and we could probably maybe convince Shane and Eleanor to weigh in on what they think of RV reviews being public on YouTube and things like that. But first I want to turn it over to, I was, I was just going to turn it over to Jessica and she disappeared. <laughs> All right, let's start with Kurt then. Kurt, National Parks Traveler, just give us a kind of a recap of what you guys are, are all about for because you haven't been on the show in a couple months. Uh, and then maybe just tell us a little bit about what's on your desk as far as public lands and things that you've been writing about lately. Yeah, boy, there's never a shortage. Um, national Parks Traveler, Brian, as we are the only news organization that focuses specifically on national parks and, and par protected lands, primarily here in the United States. We do a little bit in Canada and long term, hopefully we're going to conquer the world. There's been quite a lot of news recently in terms of national parks. Uh, just recently, the, the Park Service came out with their visitation numbers for 2021 and uh, the total was 297 million which is not bad considering it was rebounding from COVID and uh, we're still working our way through that. But what was really interesting and, and actually concerning was roughly half of those 297 million visitors went to just 25 parks, Yosemite, Yellowstone, Grand Teton, um, Grand Canyon, Glacier. And so there's a, a real disparity between the numbers of people heading out to the national park system and where they're going. When you realize that there's 423 units, uh, soon to be 424 units of the park system, and half of the visitation is going to just 25 parks, you can imagine what the problem is. Do you feel like that's a, because they're a first time visitor to these parks and they haven't seen those places before, are they going there? over and over again like for me like i want to see the grand canyon i want to see yellowstone i want to see yosemite but once i've seen them i want to go someplace that's not as crowded you know that's a, that's a good question and I, and I wish there was a little bit more social science that went into just those types of questions i know i love to go back to yellowstone i try and get back there every year so i guess maybe i'm part of the problem one of uh, the, the superintendent up there has said i've lobbied him to put in a reservation system because the natural resources are being impacted and the Park Service staff is being impacted. And he points out that, well, just 1% of our 2.2 million acres are seeing the bulk of the traffic that's coming to Yellowstone, which last year surpassed 4 million visitors. And where I try and lobby him to put in a reservation system until they can actually figure out how to manage those visitors. He says, well, don't you think that's unfair? How would you like only being able to come to Yellowstone once every five years? And I guess my view is that, you know, if it protects the resource, that's okay. I can live with that. You know, with, with 423 units of the park system, there are plenty of other national parks to go visit. And that part of the problem goes back to, to 2016 with the National Park Service Centennial, when there was that big campaign by the National Park Foundation to find your park. And people found their parks and it became such a problem that uh, Park Service staff were joking that go find another park. We have a comment here from LinkedIn from Road Tripping with a, I'm going to mispronounce it with a, how do you know, Matt? Is it Takak? Takaks? Uh, I'm so sorry if I'm butchering that, but 
Um, but yeah, try the North Rim. Like, and, and he's right. Like, we need to find and spread out people from different parks. But there are less touristy areas of the Grand Canyon, of Yosemite, of places like that. And so, I think a lot of it's just education, isn't it? A lot of it is education because there are so many incredible places to go in the national park system that if you're just going to 25, you're missing some incredible wonders. And yeah, the North Rim of the Grand Canyon is a great place to go. Part of the problem is that you don't have the lodging there that you have on the South Rim. But no, I much, much more enjoy the North Rim. You can go on and on with all the incredible parks to, to go visit. Part of the problem is the Park Service isn't authorized to market the park system. And that's it. Fascinating. Go ahead, Shane. Yeah, yeah. No, is that a, a competition thing with the private campgrounds or why, why is that? It, it's just something Congress decided a long, long time ago that the park service, you know, it's not allowed to market them, but I thank you. The concessionaires are out there and Zantero operates in a number of national parks and mo most of the top four concessionaires operate in, in various parks. And, and so you hope that there'd be some more marketing on their behalf. Badlands National Park is a great place to go. It's, it's vastly overlooked. South Dakota, the state of South Dakota could have a great marketing program with Badlands and Wind Cave and Jewel Cave and Mount Rushmore. So I think it's just public awareness. And that's one thing we try to do at The Traveler is out some of these overlooked parks. We just had a, a podcast this past week pointing out some of the, the many overlooked parks in the system and, and why people should take take the time to go explore them. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, Shane, Eleanor, what's on, uh, what's coming across your desk this week? And we lost Jessica. She said uh, her computer can't handle the application or something. So hopefully we'll get her back and Kara kind of dropped off. So there's Jessica back. Uh, we'll see if it works this time. We have internet issues all over, like Slack was down yesterday and it right. caused havoc and all kinds of things are happening. So I don't know. I, I would ask her quickly, right? Yeah. Let's quickly say <laughs> yeah. Jessica, yeah. Director Maybe, of the yeah. <laughs> Of the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable, super excited to have her here because ORR is really important, I feel like, to everything that we're doing as campground owners in the RV industry, uh, things like that. And Jessica, do you want to just introduce yourself, tell us a little about ORR and what you're working on? Sure. I do not have a degree in technology, clearly, when <laughs> my computer is 10 years old, but I am the president of Outdoor Recreation Roundtable, which is about three years old and attempting, and I think doing so successfully, at bringing the entire outdoor recreation industry together, the $689 billion industry that employs 4.3 million Americans and contributes so much to state and local economies, communities, well-being. And really, we've never come together before. We've never brought the boating and, and fishing folks with the surfing and scuba diving or the camping and paddle sports folks with the ski industry, the horseback industry, the bike industry. So we're all here and we've had, I think, massive wins over the past couple of years because we've come together on what we agree on and not those what I call trailhead conflicts. So ORR is 35 trade associations representing every single activity in our sector and over 110,000 businesses. When you think about the breadth of that, it's really overwhelming. But when you think about what we have in common, it's about 99% overlap. We care about access, funding and infrastructure and getting people outside. And it's an awesome space to be in and learn about all the different segments. I'm glad to be here. And that's one of the reasons I wanted you on the show is because there is such overlap in our industry. And I feel like sometimes with the amount of things that campground owners and RV industry people have on their plates, sometimes that's lost in the shuffle. And I know both are part of your organization. I think Arvik yep. has a seat on the board and, and obviously yep. the RV industry does and Phil's normally on the show who is one of your past presidents, yep. I think. But yeah, Matt deals with this, right? He goes in and out of these RVs that have all kinds of places for boats and fishing gear and stuff like that. All of these activities are driving people to come to campgrounds, both from a public lands perspective, from Kurtz and a private, from 
Shane on CCRVC side and all those kinds of things. But what are some of the things that you're working on that has impacted parks recently? Or well, you know, I think just that, just one thing is the consumer is changing. They're expecting that we're talking together and working together. And there's not a single next-gen consumer that wants to just do one activity. In fact, eight out of 10 outdoor recreationists want to try another activity. So they're going to campground to bike or to kayak or to off-road or in a motorcycle or to tent camp or whatever. There's other reasons why they're camping. There's reasons why taking an RV or a motorcycle. There's reasons why they're going on a boat. And so the crossover is really important. I think the consumers wants products that really speak to them. It's not my parents' generation of you've got your climber and that's what you are and that defines you. It's people wanting to experiment. They want to have adventures. They want to post about it and they want to try everything. So we're really excited about bringing all of that together for the market, right? How do we create better products? How do we better programs? How do we create better access? And I think for the parks, the biggest win, and Kurt, I'm sure has talked about this, but Great American Outdoors are the biggest and, and most revenue going into parks ever. We were part of that. ORR was really instrumental in getting that done and not just getting that done for the parks, but ensuring the Forest Service and Fish and Wildlife Service and BLM had that because we don't just camp in parks and we don't just recreate in parks. And I think the other thing we've been able to highlight is there's other agencies like Army Corps of Engineers forest service that have wonderful recreation experience and actually more possible recreation opportunities because parks are a little bit restrictive on some of that. So we've been able to bring, I think, more funding into the parks and also a lot of new and creative ideas about how people access the parks, how they want to access the parks and how next-gen technologies and business innovations really need to be taken into consideration and updated even park passes. The consumer wants something different and we want to bring that to the table. Are there specific pieces of legislation that ORR is working on that you're trying to get past now or that you'd like to focus on in the future that you think will impact the industry? Yeah, I hope that everyone can get on board with this as we're rolling into, I think, what could be one of the biggest opportunities for the recreation industry to really stand alone and show our power. And this is a recreation package. It's coming together in the Senate. We're going to get it done in the House, hopefully. We have an opportunity to pass it in what I will call lame duck Congress that we're about to approach as we hit midterm elections. It's bipartisan, bicameral, and it's about 10 to 12 bills that help all uh, different types of recreation activities across the spectrum. Doesn't cost, it's not these big heavy lifts. It's really just streamlining and getting better processes and better management, both state and national level, to ensure that recreation is a priority for these agencies. It's a priority for land managers. It's a priority for funding. We've got money now to help with infrastructure, but we need much better tool to ensure that we're doing it properly. And then we're talking to the private sector, quite frankly, and making sure that feedback is open where the private sector can say, this is what's coming. This is the type of RV we're creating. This is where the EV electric vehicle sector is going. And that the agencies have a way to take that input into consideration. It helps with permits, helps with park passes, all the things that frustrate you every day when you're outside. This recreation bill um, is a wonderful off to fix a lot of the problems that we're facing and to do it in a way that everyone can agree on. So will be the first time ever that recreation bills pass alone. They're not attached to a big public lands package that's much more controversial, not to attach to a big funding package that's controversial. We think we're powerful enough to get our own legislation across the finish line. We hope that everyone could join us in that. I'd love to hear from some of the other people on the group. And I know Kara and Eleanor and Shane, you're all from Canada, but I believe you have your own offshoot that you're trying to start of the Canadian ORR up there. But then just from Kurt and Matt, how, how does the work that ORR is doing impact what you guys do? open discussion. I'll add on to uh, what Jessica was saying about the Great American Outdoors Act. And it really is funneling money into the national parks to help with some backlog maintenance. And uh, what's been nice to see is 
while it seems the bulk of it is going to the Yellowstones and the Yosemite, there are some smaller parts that are benefiting from this, like a Saratoga National Historic Site in upstate New York, which interprets the, uh, the changing of the World Guard when the, the colonials were able to defeat the British during the American Revolution. And uh, they got $6 million to basically re rehabilitate a, a, a loop route that goes through the historic site that helps interpret. So it's really nice to see that the money is being spread out. Of course, the, the big question is, it's a five-year bill. And, and maybe, Jessica, are you already working on the extension for uh, the next five years after this one expires? Yeah, we are. We're hoping that there's enough good projects, recreation projects in particular, that we can speak to that with members of Congress across the country and say this is why we need another round of funding. So reauthorization is always on our mind, for sure. What's interesting, Jesse also mentioned electric vehicles, and we're working on a story now to look at the national park system here in the United States to see, can they handle them? If we're seeing all the, the EV purchases that are being predicted, you know, what happens when all those people turn up in a national park and say, hey, where do I plug in? And I think what we're finding through our research is that not all parks are capable of handling that type of charger system, both because of the, the lack of space and the, the lack of available electricity to, to funnel through it. Yeah, yeah well, it's at the Miami Boat Show, and that's where they're headed. The Mi There's more electric boats than I even knew were at the market. And then Winnebago and Airstream just launched their electric vehicles. And I was talking to them at this boat show uh, as well. And I said, what's the biggest problem? They said, no one understands that this is happening and that it can happen, especially public land managers and state land. They don't get that this is two market orders are in, vehicles are coming out and they're going to expect. So how do we better work together? Like in your mind, I know Shane and Eleanor, you're in Canada, but tell us a little bit about your ORR briefly and then how you guys are or hope to work together with them to accomplish some of your goals in Canada. You want to start, Shane? Oh, sure. We all ultimately took uh, inspiration from the ORR. That's where our group uh, started because we saw what was happening in the U.S. and uh, we thought it was a, a great opportunity for ourselves. So I think we initially met in 2018 and really formed the group, the Canadian Outdoor Recreation Roundtable in 2019, I think it was, and started to make a, a push with politicians at the beginning of 2020. And then obviously with everything that's happened, that's been put a bit on the side, but we continue to meet. And I think part of the, the question is always funding. How are we going to fund some of these initiatives? Where does that money come from? But ultimately our, our goal is to A, increase the awareness of what the outdoor recreation industry is in Canada, what the economic impact of it is, as well as make sure that our governments continue to to invest in, I would say, recreational infrastructure. Because it's, it's very similar to what Kirk was saying. We have our national parks. We have the big seven, six or seven, where everybody goes to. And uh, we have, but we have a lot more properties that people could be exploring. And they do need to have the electronics charging stations that do need to update their, we always say they need to update their infrastructure infrastructure for RVs in terms of space and trees, but they also, in terms of the water services flows. And we hope that we're able, as things are now opening up again in Canada, it's really just started in the last, I'm going to say three or four weeks, that we're going to be able to get back together as a group and start to relaunch some of the initiatives that, that we had started late 2019, 2020. Shane, I don't know if you want to add anything. Yeah, electrical year funding issue. We're not as financially vibrant as what you are all in the U.S. And so we're at the liberty of some volunteers who have other jobs, other association uh, presidents. And, uh, you know, right now it's Sarah uh, Angel from the, the National Marine uh, Manufacturers Association doing it when she can. It's become 
a little challenging uh, for her and the rest of the group uh, over the last two years because we've all had our certain issues that we needed to address. So that I'm looking forward to having that group together again, because there, there are a number of things that I think we, we need to get back to the to address. Well, Jessica, I, I, I want to ask you something about the electrical issues and everything. <clears throat> and I know what happened to California and the generator issue as far as climate emissions and, and carbon footprint or whatever. I was on a call this week with a Canadian government official who told me that Canada is going to look at the same thing as California is looked at. I did my best to dissuade them, but I don't think I, I did very much there. But is your group talking about this now as far as what everybody's involved with, whether it's snowmobile, ATVs, or the RV industry? Yeah, actually, um, it's perfect timing. We are having a summit to talk about snowmobile, off-road, power sports, motorcycle, RV, boat, and bike primarily, which are going electric. And it's actually going to be invite-only closed door because I think there's a lot that we want policymakers to understand about the challenges of going electric. It's a great opportunity, and it's a great opportunity for boats on a lake, right? Like, it could be really good in Tahoe where there's charging stations. You're on a lake. You're out there for a couple hours. It's not viable right now, deep sea fishing off the ocean. And I think it's the same for some RV experiences. And so we just want to level set and explain that this really needs to be, and it is so far market driven. It's a great market opportunity. It's great to hear that the government's going to support the infrastructure, but it's not the end all be all. It's not going to be where everyone goes and it's not going to happen overnight. And so there needs to be space for understanding what's going to drive the economy, which is where we come to where our center is on the economic benefits of the outdoor recreation and that let the businesses be at the table to explain how the market's going to work and what we need to help support that market that this administration in particular is really interested in advancing. But there's going to be other fuel alternatives and we're also not going to make the transition overnight. I think that the probably final piece that we're going to discuss, which is really important and not talked about enough and fascinating to me is so much of funding for outdoor recreation actually comes from fossil fuels, whether it's the off-road fuel, fuel tax for the recreational trails program, um, sport fish boating restoration fund comes from boat fuel tax. And then obviously the land and water conservation fund comes from offshore at our continental shelf oil and gas drilling. Making that transition overnight also isn't great for recreation conservation funding. And where are those revenue, those dollars going to come from? So I think it's, it needs to be a measured, pragmatic conversation with the experts in the room. And I'm really excited to facilitate that for our entire industry. I also think we can learn from one another. There's a lot of companies doing both who are going to make traditional vehicles and expand in the electric market. And I want them to see that there's counterparts in other segments of outdoor recreation who are doing the same and be able to share lessons learned. We're bringing in Rivian and GM and companies are putting their fleet, electrifying their fleet, who are having problems with electricity in parks and similar things. So how can we all work together? And then how can we make sure this isn't happening to us, but that we're really uh, leaders in what comes next? I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. We, it's good. And we all need to work together. And it, I mean, it's good that you guys are talking to the, uh, the, the vehicle manufacturers as well, getting them involved. The biggest pet peeve I have is when somebody makes a decision without having been involved in some fact finding with the people that actually the to implement things. And I, I did thank 
this, uh, this guy from the government for doing that. And they're starting to do that more. And I uh, really appreciated the, the chance to, to give them some input on what, what the implementation would challenge us as an industry and, and where it's good and where we may have some problems. And I think that's the benefit of ORR, you know, before we were set up and, and they had hired me and we were a little bit more established as we are now, people just wanted a place to go to ask these questions. The agencies want to understand what's happening. They don't want to have to go to 25, 35 different organizations. They want to be able to say, does this work? Does this not work? Why doesn't it work? And, and I feel like our Canada or our, you know, U.S. can really facilitate those conversations. You really need to talk to Polaris. They've got a new vehicle coming to market and they've found some great opportunities to, to work with a park or you really need to talk to Winnebago because they're they're really forward thinking on this and we're really happy to facilitate that and then we are seeing the government's coming to us they're asking us and they're engaged in these conversations and maybe I'm just really optimistic but I, I think it's making a difference. Well, I definitely think it is, right? It's all, it all ties together with education, whether it's from an ORR directing the, legislate, the legislators to the appropriate place from the Senate or the House or whatever, same thing in Canada, or whether it's making people more aware that ORR even exists among campground owners and RV industries peoples, because there's a lot of, there's a huge voice here already ORR. But the more we can get these park owners on an individual level, what, there's three or 4,000 of them in the U.S., there's three, two or 3,000 in Canada, the more that they're all standing up together and having one voice, the more power that the industry has. And all that requires education, right? Yeah, that, yep, that's exactly right. And, and Kurt's organization obviously helps us educate folks. And, and even on the park piece, Kurt, I don't know what you're hearing on the EV side, but parks have uh, trouble taking donations. So the companies who have thought about donating electric infrastructure to parks are, they're getting turned away because there's such a complicated donation process. So it's like, we can't even get some of the, the opportunities that we're willing to fund off the ground. And so it just becomes something that's really important to unravel, educate on, and then create policies off of that can actually work. Yeah, I think we're seeing um, some movement in that area, Jessica. Just uh, the other week, we had a story about uh, is helping install chargers in Yosemite National Park and yep. Golden Gate National Recreation Area. And I guess there's a, a nonprofit organization um, based in California that is actually working along those lines to, to bring the industry to the parks and whatnot. But maybe this is one way to cut the, uh, the crowding in national parks is don't put charge. Let's go back. Let's toss it to Matt for a second. Matt, you've done a ton of RV reviews. Have you done anything with an all electric RV yet? No, I, I was there at the Tampa show when they came out with it. So from my understanding, and maybe somebody can tell me if I'm wrong that they're not even out yet. Those are, those were all just concept vehicles. I know that Airstream had some issues with it after they did like their big debut and with all of them, I, the RV industry, I always like to say it's, it's always had or 20 years behind times there. What I'm seeing now is lithium ion batteries are now only starting to really hit the towable market and they were really only starting to get popular three or four years ago in the class B's. So, and, the, and those are just the, the batteries. So I think we're at least 10 years out for electric RVs as a whole. I think in the more immediate will be class B vans and very small travel trailers that can get pulled behind a Rivian. I think when, for the next five years, when we see all electric RVs, that's what it's going to be. Just those two categories until they're able to get more chargers, get more of everything. And then they'll start branching out into the, the bigger categories. It, it's only been in the last year that finally all the high end 
class A gas motorhomes don't have propane in them. If we're talking diesels, the class A, or I, I said gas, I meant diesels. They're now just becoming all electric uh, with no propane. But even the gas motorhomes in the class C motorhomes and the travel trailers and fifth wheels, they're still all using propane. And so it's just the RV industry gets scared. From what I see, the manufacturers get scared with a lot of change. So I just think whereas like the car industry might be able to do it like that, it's a lot slower snap for the manufacturer. From my observation, yeah. at least. Hey, Matt, if, if I'm an RV manufacturer, I think I'm sending you Nick's tickets for a good review. Hey, listen, nobody's done that. <laughs> we don't want to do that. But hey, if it was the right sporting event, maybe I can give somebody a positive review. I, I was talking to somebody from Go Power this week, and they're putting, he gave me a stat. Is it 75%? I could be wrong on that. But 75% of the towables now have solar lit infrastructure already put in. You just need to put the panels on. We're getting better. I, I will probably have to disagree with you on the, on the time, Matt. I think we're a little bit better 10 or 20 years. Uh, I think we're, it, takes, it takes a while to, to get Titanic to turn around and right. think in a different way. But we're getting there. And I think, I think everybody in the industry really knows where we have to be. And, and are starting to think that way. <clears throat> yeah. And I think it's what we're talking about too, is if for some boats, just cause Miami, just coming off Miami, but some boats will never be there, but the technology we have today, I don't know what's coming in the next couple of years, but they might be hybrid. That might be the answer there when you're close to shore can charge great. But I think about that too, with these long road trips in these rural areas and until someone feels super comfortable crossing the state where they're not sure they're going to charge. There's some danger to it. We talk about snowmobiles a lot. Snowmobiles have some of the hardest times you're going so far in the backcountry, like you don't want to be stuck there and you're in freezing temperatures. So there's logistical things that I think consumers are rightfully nervous about, but then there's things like hybrid, the middle pathway. KOA had this campground of the future modeling at an RV show I was at a couple of years ago where you're parking under solar chargers that help, you know, provide the infrastructure. And obviously boats have awesome opportunity for solar. So there's ways to integrate all of it and not say tomorrow we all need to be electric. And I think that's our message right now to a lot of political leaders who are really excited about electric is it's not going to be tomorrow, but let's keep, you know, talking about things and working on things. And I'm excited that our industry, who I think has some of the people who care the most about the outdoors and the planet in the country, no matter what side of politics you're on, we're the closest to it. We're the outdoor industry. I think we all want to see a cleaner, better future, but we're a little bit realistic because it's it's not as easy as, as flipping a switch. To use a very bad analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is a huge discussion that we see in the park owner groups about how am I going to wire my campground and how am I going to do that? And so I'm sure the same thing exists from the manufacturer side. I'm just more ignorant to it because I'm not as involved in it as I am from the campground owner perspective being here for over a decade or so. But we're getting a lot of things in the chat, people are. And so maybe we continue this discussion a little bit for a second. Jacob Marler said on LinkedIn, do you think there will be a transition away from traditional RVs because of the high price of fuel? Now, obviously, if we're talking five, 10 years down the road, we have no idea what the price of fuel will be. At that point, and as I think we both pointed out, these are all pointed out, these, these are concepts now, right? So they don't exist, so the opportunity isn't there to transition away from them. But is there a discussion to be had here from any of your perspectives? Does, does fuel impact this and the speed with which it moves? I don't know. We've all, we all have often get asked about consumers and what the price of fuel, what impact it has on their RV vacationing. 
And over the over time, I'm going to say it, it impacts maybe how far they go, but it doesn't really impact their purchasing. It doesn't impact their using their RVs and their wanting to vacation. And when you look at the overall cost, and we did an affordability study, I think last year of RVing, fuel prices are going to impact whatever recreation activity you have, whether you're on a plane or, or in a boat. So if you're going to go outside, have a vacation, recreate, I think people just are, are willing to count in the price of fuel as one of their expenditures. But I do see that as the, it's a bit of the consumer is saying, yes, we do want greener methods. We do want to be able to explore other alternatives and, and green initiatives. So I don't know if it's as much that the price of fuel will, will be the driver, as what the consumer is looking for in terms of how they want to enjoy the outdoors. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree with that. That's definitely what I'm hearing. Yeah, from the boat industry and other sectors is the reality is product sales are very high. Vehicle sales are very high right now. The industry is doing wonderfully and there's inflation and there's cost of fuel. There's a lot of things that traditionally would be against us. And I think we're going to see one of our best years as an industry in 2021 and it's not slowing down it hasn't impacted the at least the recreation user to the extent that i think you would assume and probably for the reasons just mentioned yeah and i think we've got a kyle brady had a comment on linkedin too the pre-wired solar ready rvs are great but they're not built for high capacity usage yet it seems more of a marketing tactic than a functional feature at least by the way rvers really want to use their rig so i don't know if you Anybody wants to comment on that, but it feels like there's a long way to go still to where they're actually being used in a high capacity usage and probably, I, I don't know. If that's yeah, I can comment on that. Yeah. So from, again, like talking about where electric will be in the future to what is the new technology now, solar is. And I know Keystone and Jayco and a lot of manufacturers are now putting the solar on the roof but it's only 200 watts, 100 watts. It's enough to turn the lights on and off, but it's not enough for people to actually go camping the way that a B-van currently can go camping. They make these B-vans that are 100% self-sufficient, don't need a generator because they run completely off solar. Part of that's because of how small it is and how compact it is and the pricing of it. You're gonna spend $100,000 for a cheap B-van might as well spend $150,000 and get it all decked out with the batteries. And so I, th I do see that they are making the right steps in the right directions. But again, I, I still see it being three years out until the main thing is trying to get the AC units to run off the batteries. That's the biggest thing that I hear from customers. And I, I'm sponsored by Lippert. And, and uh, when we were out there, they're working on Furion and Lippert and probably other OEMs, they're working on trying to make, I don't want to call it more efficient air conditioning units, but like less efficient air conditioning units. I, I don't know. That's not the right word, but AC units that don't require as much power so that they can make it so they can run off the batteries. And then I'll see that being the big game changer. Yeah, I agree with that. It's a lot of it's a lot of the technology continue to evolve, but it's also consumer awareness with what you can and can't do. Like I ran into this years ago when I bought my first solar generator and I tried to plug in like a blender to it and it busted the whole you know thing and I had to buy a whole new one. So I learned a hard lesson that way. But, but so yeah, as technology continues to evolve again, I think that goes back to education and making people aware of what they can and can't do, but also responding to that demand, like Eleanor was saying, of what the consumer wants to do. And I think those are eventually going to go hand in hand. Yeah, I'm super excited to see 
that in the future. And I'm curious, Kurt, from your perspective, and then maybe to Shane from your CCRVC side too, just briefly, because we see a lot of discussions about this electric conversion and the changeover. How how much is going to be involved in this from a national park logistical standpoint? Uh, what do you feel like the funding looks like? How What do you think the timetable is? And same question to you, Shane, when Kurt's done. I think you're reading my mind, Brian, because I'm sitting here listening to the discussion. And Jessica mentioned that you know, more and more RV sales are going on, probably at levels we've never seen before. People want to get out on the road. You're seeing bigger RVs in some instances. And if you're moving more towards EV vehicles, it's... Will the park service be able to keep up with that demand? Will they be able to retrofit their campgrounds? And I'm not so sure they'll be able to. Just recently, we had the park service release the, the 21st century campground design um, guidelines. And um, there were more guidelines for building new campgrounds. And I don't think we're going to see that in, in many national parks. And as far as whether the park service will decide to retrofit their campgrounds to accommodate larger RVs, to accommodate more RVs, to accommodate electric vehicle chargers, I think at this point they, they probably have more important things on their minds with letting the private sector and the KOAs and the, the privately owned campgrounds surrounding national parks to, to handle it. I don't know, have you heard anything in that direction, Jessica? Yeah, that's what we've talked to the private campground industry about is there's a lot of federal dollars on the table right now to electrify and help with this transition. And if I was a private campground owner, I would be going after that infrastructure funding right now. And and I think you mentioned like the overcrowding. I just think about how important private campgrounds are and just the, the other businesses and gateway communities to the operations of a national park. And I think there will be some reliance on those places to be the hub of this type of infrastructure while they're catching up and figuring it out. It would be easier probably right now for a private campground to get the money to help support something like this than, you know, all of the parks. So it's definitely something we're talking to the RVIC. I know Paul's thinking about it. I know RVIA is thinking about some of these funding streams and grants, RVDA. So they're your best advocates. They're everyone's best advocates to, you know, help solve the puzzle of how we can do this economically for a private campground who might not be able to facilitate all the infrastructure on their own. Hey, Brian, quick plug for um, something else that we're working on here at The Traveler. I've, I'm not an RVer. I've wanted to be one. I'm looking for a pickup truck that I can put a camper on. But I've had, obviously, running the National Parks Traveler website for 16, going on 17 years. And I've got a, an RV writer out there who's been a full-time RVer since 2007. And trying to put your finger on exactly what National Park campgrounds can handle in terms of size of RVs and hookups and other amenities has been really difficult unless you want to spend all afternoon going website to website. In the next couple of months, we're going to be releasing what we think is going to be the definitive guide to National Park System campgrounds and, and RV campers and, and what they can handle. And I'm trying to convince my writer that we should include, are there EV stations in the parks or where's the nearest EV station? Because your big RV still might be gas powered. You might be towing a little EV that you want to tool around the park and knowing exactly where those EV stations are, I think will be invaluable. So keep, keep an eye on that. We're going to have it in a couple of months and it's really going to be a comprehensive guide to over 70 parks and over 250 campgrounds. Yeah, that's a fantastic feature. I'm, I'm like, I, I would love to see that kind of shift toward private campgrounds too. Not from your perspective, Kurt. I, I think you're an excellent resource, and that's going to be hugely valuable to people. But I, I would love to see somebody from the private campground industry kind of spear that effort too. And maybe that's Kara. I know you've been in and out of the show because you're in that connection. But is that something that's feasible? Maybe with CCRBC from a perspective, where we just start collecting that data and providing it to consumers more. 
yeah, the sky's the limit. <laughs> Build my to-do list. Let's get it done. <laughs> she sounds so enthusiastic to take on that extra challenge. <laughs> we'll get it done. We're already tracking tons of amenity data information for private campgrounds across the country. I see no reason why we can't add a couple more metrics and parameters to that, nor we certainly rely on operators to provide us really accurate information so that those listings are the most kind of reliable that they can be. And I don't know if most people don't know that we, we also manage the listing data at Gorging Canada's website, gorging.ca. That's in an effort to make sure that the campground listing data across the country is really, really valuable and reliable and matching what operators provide for us. I know it's sometimes difficult with so many listing sites to be sure that information is really accurate. So that's a priority for us. And I, I see no reason why we can't add, add a couple more checkboxes on the form. So speaking of data specifically, I'm curious, Jessica, does some of this data that Kurt's gathering that Kara and CCRBC might gather, uh, that the industry associations have like Arvik and stuff like that, does that help you in your legislative efforts? Yeah, it's important that there's experts in each of the segments, right? That there's an expert in private campgrounds that we can go to when there's questions, experts in uh, the fishing the, the space. But I think what's also really important is that we can collate all the data and that really helped us get uh ppp dollars money for our type our businesses and help with you know transition it to seasonal we worked with arvic and the rbda and rbia specifically on making sure that like campground owners campground operators could access ppp because it wasn't uh, set up for seasonal businesses and our industry tends to be really seasonal ski resorts ski operators the concessionaires you know couldn't access ppp at all and we use this industry data, how many campgrounds, how many people, and also just how many people are employed, how many people rely on that segment. And we actually changed that the way that PPP, the um, payroll protection program during the recovering relief a couple of years ago, how it was structured due to the data from a lot of it, actually, from the campground and the RV industry saying that these are dealers that are primarily making money through these months in the season. There's a seasonality to it, and they're not, you know, able to apply for this PPP money because they don't fit within this window that the government determined. So we actually were seen as leaders in restructuring a whole, you know, payroll, payroll protection program and the recovery and release bill because of data from the industry. So it's incredibly important what care is collecting and everyone's collecting. We use that for the strangest things. Like sometimes it's to advocate and to show how powerful we are. And sometimes it's to say, hey, we really need some support here. And, and I think a lot of this happens behind the scenes, but that's what associations are doing on behalf of their members. And it's incredibly impactful. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So I just want to make sure we're facilitating those conversations between each other. And so if there's data that you need, maybe we can pass that along to the private campground association or the RV industry association or whatever it may be. Cause the more, again, we all work together, we educate, we know what each other is doing, the better it is for everybody involved. I feel like I did have one more question uh, from a comment here and I would, I've asked you it anyway, Jessica, but Todd Winperry says, how do we join or follow? I assume he means ORR. And so yeah, I can't yeah. this, how, how do they get in touch with you? How do they stay up on the efforts that you're doing? Things like that. Yeah, we're primarily B2B. We are primarily talking to businesses and business associations. So we don't have this like fancy website platform. We are on LinkedIn, Outdoor Recreation Roundtable, Twitter. I'm on Twitter, Jess Wall Rec, I think. And we have Instagram account, but I would say our website and our press releases are the most impactful. We're going to do a website redesign, as you'll see with the, the technology issues that I have, but we've got a team now helping us with that. But I think on LinkedIn is really where we post a lot of the things happening in our industry and through the trade associations that are, you know, members of ours are always posting about the work they're doing with us. So 
I would point you certainly to LinkedIn and our Twitter. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I know there's going to be a lot of questions about this after people watch the show and things like that, because uh, there's a lot of awareness about what ORR does, but not the intricate details that you shared with us. And I think that's part of the reason that I wanted you on the show. And hopefully either you or a member of your organization can be a part of the show once a month going forward, because I'd love to touch on the different segments of how boating impacts the RV industry, how fishing impacts the RV industry. And because we've got a lot of business owners here that the more they're made aware of those things, the more I think they want to get involved and help. Cool. So. All right. What else do we want to talk about here before we end up the show? We got about uh, nine minutes left or so. Anything else that's come across anybody's desks that uh, they feel is important to mention, talk about? Don't all talk at once. Busy industry. There's a lot of silence here. <laughs> I'm thinking a lot about, and maybe Matt has some perspective on this, but I'm thinking coming off the the biggest boat show in the world where I was talking to some owners and they were writing orders for 2026. I'm thinking about product, supply chain, all of that, and how you keep up the momentum when you can't put these fancy, awesome new products that people are seeing right now to market today or tomorrow. So how do you know in four years that you're going to want the same boat or that the technology will be the same? And right. Matt, I don't know if you're seeing RVs coming to market or things that you're reviewing or frustrated customers, or if everyone's just in an acceptance mode that this is, and you're going to have to wait. 12 months for furniture, you're gonna have to wait three months for a boat or are you three years for a boat. Right, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm... yeah. so the good news is uh, the majority of stuff, I'd say 95%, uh, you're looking at three months, six months, nine months out. It's the other 5% that's tough. Like at the partner with RVR and they weren't selling 2022 or 2023 Airstreams. They were taking orders for 2024s. I can't speak on leisure, but they're the same way. Leisure, they're two years out. They're three years out. So it's very few brands that are like that. And from what I understand, how it works on the dealer level is you're, you're not locked into a price. It's, hey, you're paying this price. And if it goes up 10 or 20 grand in two years when it comes in, that's still the price you're going to be paying that increase as well but we had one customer they literally have a leisure travel van on order but they went ahead and bought a little class c for the meantime and when their leisure comes in they'll know then they'll just sell their class c and it's better than not having an rv they're going to take call it a ten thousand dollar depreciation hit maybe more maybe less but it's better than not camping at all for a year and a half or two shane Eller, really you Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I apologize. We're just on a delay. Uh, go ahead if you had something. Yeah, it's we're hearing some extended lag times. I, uh, three or four years down the road, what's how can you even sign a contract when you don't know how much it would cost? Those so we, I don't know. It's hopefully this is a, a real short problem and, and we yeah. head back to normal. Well, I think to echo Matt's point is that 80, 90% of the product is available. Yes, in Canada, if you're ordering in January, you probably won't get it till May, but that's okay because you're probably not going out in January. As long as consumers are planning and knowing that there is a bit of time and those specialty vehicles that, that you have your heart set on are going to take, we're hearing two, three years out. 
So I really liked the point that you made about having sort of an interim unit that, so that you can use during the time. I think our dealers are very concerned about price increases and are trying to ensure that consumers understand, ensure that manufacturers understand that because there are different consumer protection acts in each province and the requirements by businesses are different in each province. And how do you address that with a customer? So back to Brian's point, it's all about education and making sure people are aware of what it is, uh, what the realities are in the industry. And, and then hopefully we can mitigate some of those bumps and ensure that people have still the RV they want in a positive way. Well, and maybe this is a question that came to my mind too. And, and I so apologize. I'll just, I'll give you two seconds, but this is a, a question that came to my mind too, is if you're ordering a 2024 RV, are you ordering a 2022 to be delivered 2024 or are you ordering a 2024, whatever that looks like? Whatever it looks like. Okay. That's what I thought. So that makes it a little bit more easier to swallow from the technology being behind standpoint, right? Yep. So uh, go ahead, Jessica. Again, the, the, that, that's the Airstreams. And I don't know of any other brands that have that type of lead time. There may be Phoenix Cruiser. Anybody else is going to be the smaller person. As Eleanor said, you buy it today, you're going to get it knock on wood by May or June. The real biggest thing that I've seen is with manufacturers, they have 400, 500 vendors for their product lines. And we've seen manufacturers switch units out. Like there's this one brand of Forest River, the impression, what we really loved about it, what was one of our positive things during the review was that their TV fireplace air conditioning, microwave, refrigerator, everything was Furion last year. And we like that because if something goes wrong, you only have one person to call. Well, two, Forest River or Furion, right? So I really like that. Now in the current ones, they have a Magic Chef, a Dometic, Sansui, a Furion. And personally, I don't care about Furion or I don't care about Magic Chef, but I did like that consistency of one brand in the unit and now they're not doing that. And I see that as a major dis dislike now. But on the flip side, Alliance just, they ran out of ladders. And if you guys haven't noticed, go to an RV dealership. Nobody has ladders anymore. <laughs> but Alliance started putting these new metal ladders on the roofs. And I called up Ryan Brady. I said, hey, man, you have to keep with that because uh, if you've never seen up my show, I'm a portly guy and I climb up on the roofs. And let me tell you, those ladders are struggling. Whereas when I climbed up on that new Alliance with that new ladder, I loved it. And, and unfortunately, it's going to cost Alliance more money. But there is some positive outcomes out of these shortages because I can promise you this, two years from now, you'll see that metal ladder on everything. Just because I'm fat and I climb up on roofs and nobody wants to be the one that ha makes the... Uh, flimsy ladder for me. I'm glad that you said that, Matt, because I eat a lot of pizza and now I'm more comfortable eating more pizza. So Hell yeah, you can eat pizza again because now well, once you get the uh, metal ladders. So there is some positive coming out of the shortages, but again, more of it's negative. And, and the big frustrating part with my videos is a customer will see my video and they'll see, uh, for a great example, a Grand Design was using Goodyear Endurance tires. I've now had a few grand designs and they didn't come in with good years because of shortages. And, and that's the part that kind of will stink for the customer. If they were, if that good year endurance tire was part of their buying decision. 
Perfect. All right, we're running out of time here. I want to ask one tiny bit controversial question to Jessica. I promise I'm not putting you on the spot. You don't have to say anything bad. But I would be remiss if I let this go because obviously the Outdoor Industry Association is very huge. And specifically from a campground standpoint, we know Arvik is represented in your association. Arvik does not represent all of the states in the United States. So are there opportunities for some of those state associations to work directly with ORR if they're not a part of Arvik and give you more of a, a voice? Yeah, I think we're open to all, I guess I would say, associations that represent outdoor recreation. We're trying to increase the pie and not fight over the slices. I'm, I'm not as familiar with the state association kind of concept. I know that a lot of industries have that, and sometimes they're represented by the national, sometimes they're not. So it's something actually that uh, has been brought up is how do we make sure they're at the table? Because we've been fighting for state directors of recreation in all of the states. We know how important they are to governor's offices and crossing over silos. So I see that as probably the same as state associations, just being really uh, aware of what's needed in certain states and having that expertise in the room would always be valuable for sure. Awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just feel like there's a lot of great organizations out there and a lot of them are part of Arvik and some of them aren't. So I just want to make sure that we get answers for everybody who wants to take part in your organization as much as possible because it's a great thing. Okay. Do we have anything else, Kara? Anything else you can think of that we missed this week? I'm not sure. Since I missed so much of the show, I don't know what you guys talked about for half the time. So right. I sincerely apologize, guys. I've had nothing but issues all day with this. I live it's in the all right. It happens, it happens to us all from time to time. So really appreciate you guys joining us for another episode of uh, MC Fireside Chats. Again, the RV Industry Outdoor Rec Show. We will be back the fourth week in March with another uh, episode here. I believe Shane, Eleanor, Phil, and Grassi will be joining us again. Hopefully, Kurt. Jessica, if it's not you, hopefully somebody from your organization. Love to have a RRB continuing representative here and just disseminate more of that education. Same thing with you, Matt. Welcome back if you'd like to. I'd love to have the consumer perspective and the things that you're seeing and stuff like that. So uh, as a reminder, we are available on the podcast platforms after this, uh, Google, Apple, Spotify, all those kinds of places. You can watch our archived episodes on mcfiresidechats.com. And next week, I believe we have our open discussion show again with uh, some CEOs and executives, people like that from the campground industry. So thank you all for joining us again. Really appreciate it. And we will see you next Thank week. You. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for watching this episode of MC Fireside Chats, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. Have a suggestion for a future show or want to see your campground or company as part of an episode? Email us at hello at moderncampground.com. Join us next week for another episode. And don't miss the latest outdoor hospitality news and commentary from around the world at moderncampground.com. 